Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Hope you're all doing well. Thank you for joining me. This is the podcast where we have the courage to talk about the topics that uh, the politically correct media seems to avoid, the topics that relate to especially Islamic reform against the root causes of radical Islam, against Islamist terrorism, and also to look at what our foreign policy and our strategy should be to protect not only our national security, but universal human rights, and looking at what can be the source of significant angst across the planet in a Muslim majority communities, plural, if you will, that are suffering from often pre-enlightenment interpretation, ideology, dictatorships, and theocracy. And nothing, nothing is more highlighted about this and more real than what is happening in Iran this week, this month, last month, and very few are covering on a regular basis and while they should be. I've been involved, as you know, in the Muslim reform movement. We have come together as various small startups of reformists who believe in the sanctity of individual rights, of autonomy, of free speech, of freedom of religion or freedom from religion or freedom of religion or freedom to leave religion. And unfortunately, the Islamists have mandated uh, the faith practice of what is Islam in their communities where they control, where they are the establishment. And unfortunately, they have co-opted many in the West, many of you to believe that they are the representatives of Islam and anything you do against them, anything you do to criticize them is somehow bigoted and Islamophobic. And as I've told you before on this program, what is truly bigotry is a bigotry of low expectations that somehow Muslims deserve to live under the boots of theocrats, that somehow Arabs, Persians, Pakistanis, Indian Muslims, Muslims of all ethnic extraction somehow deserve to be oppressed. What's happening in Iran? I led a webinar with my friends at the Muslim Reform Movement and also some guests with Ezra Nomani, Raheel Raza, Saraya Deen, and Sagar Erika Kasrai. And we talked about what Ezra called the great cover-up, the murder of Mahsa Amini. And the word cover-up, just like hijab, has a lot of meanings in what is exactly being covered up. There are Muslim, non-Muslim women in the streets, elbow to elbow with men, protecting them, protecting each other, in trying to speak up with their lives at stake, with hundreds upon hundreds killed with various demonstrations and all told in the past few months there have been hundreds of thousands in the streets in any one rally there have been upwards of anywhere from 500 to 10,000 or more if not more in various demonstrations across Iran and let me put this in context for you 
First of all, this demonstra- these demonstrations this year in 2022 are an evolution. We've talked about the Green Revolution on this program before. And what was the Green Revolution? It was the revolution of 2009. It was primarily a big city, a Tehran revolution of economics in which the labor the labor population revolted against being strangulated in money and rights by the establishment. And ultimately, obviously, because Iran is one of those Muslim-majority countries that has a complete and transparent connection between one of the only things that's transparent in that government is the fact that there is a complete connection between the Islamist government Supreme Council, its parliament, and its men in beard, its men in robes, its religious jurists, and its military, all jihadis and an Islamic jihad force, if you will. So that triangulation of government, military, and theocrats makes it an official and unmitigated and unmistakable theocracy. Now, there are quasi-theocratic elements of every Muslim-majority country, but some are more theocratic than others. Even Saudi Arabia, run by the royal family, which controls the military and the government, is a tribal monarchy. And some would argue that the royal family itself, even though it has made a deal with the devil since 1979 when the Wahhabi extremists took control of the Grand Mosque, almost similar to when, if, if, the Vatican had been taken control by radical terrorists. They made an agreement. They made, they made a grand bargain that they would hand the government. The, they would hand, not the government. The, the government would hand the judiciary and the educational system to the Wahhabis. And thus fast forward 80 plus years. 80. And thus fast forward 40 plus years since 1980 to... 2022, and you have a radicalization of two generations of populations by the Wahhabists. You have a control of the legal system by the Wahhabists that essentially makes it a theocracy, but not necessarily, since now we see with MBS, uh, with the panache of a mafioso, he is moving through changes that I'm sure the Wahhabis don't like, though the royal family continues to claim they are they don't see any radicalism in Wahhabism, that it's a misunderstood interpretation of Islam. It's hard to mistake the reactionary, fundamentalist, draconian interpretations of Ibn Abdul Wahhab of the early 19th century in Saudi Arabia. But the bottom line is, is that there are quasi-theocratic elements as the government allows the legal system to maintain Sharia interpretations of a certain school of thought, and in Saudi Arabia it is the Maliki school of thought. But also having said that, there's not that much difference in the four basic schools of thought in Sunni Islam, Maliki, Hanbali, Hanafi, and Shafi. And uh, the differences are often very minuscule on how they hold their hands in prayer, when time of day they pray, etc., and how they interpret the Ark of the Sun, which is hardly the areas that need 
priority as far as reform goes. But now if we turn our sights back on Iran, where the world should be paying attention to, women have been at the forefront of escalating protests in Iran, sparked by the death of and custody, in custody of a woman detained for supposedly breaking the hijab laws. And, 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 and by the way, her hijab just wasn't fitting correctly. Her hair was coming through her hijab. And there are different stories about what actually happened. But she was grabbed, assaulted, and thrown into either a police van or something and then injured and taken to the hospital, and she died of her injuries in the hospital. Her story then quickly went viral and sparked unrests with successive and successive days of unrest across Iran. Mahsa Amini's hashtag then became Women, Life, and Liberty. An activist among activists said that the woman was among three protesters shot dead and security forces across, and many more uh, uh, protesters who were injured, from Urmia to Panshar to Kermasha. Mahsa Amini was a 22-year-old Kurdish woman from the northwestern city of Sagaz who died in hospital a few weeks ago. She was spending three days with her brother in Tehran when she was arrested by the morality police who accused her of breaking the law requiring women to cover their hair with a hijab or headscarf and their arms and legs with loose clothing. She fell into a coma after collapsing at a detention center. There are reports that the police beat Miss Amini in the head with a baton and banged her head against one of the vehicles. And the feckless UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Neda Al-Nashif, said that the police have denied that she was mistreated and that she suffered sudden heart failure. Her family said that she's never had any heart disease known. And that is absurd. She's 22 years old. And I'll remind folks, again, the United States had no sense of knowing that this riot, these, these uprisings and protests were going to happen and continue to rise. Like in the Arab Awakening, like in Tunisia when the Deli, when the uh, uh, deli owners lit himself on fire and self-emulated and sparked a revolution, the Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia, one hero hits a collective nerve that sets off a neurological storm. And then where's the Biden administration? Where's the West? Still no response. They've obviously spoken out about the human rights in Iran. But I have to say, with, with such, if, if you truly care about national security, what, what better anti-nuclear program than to have an uprising that puts the, the theocrats, the men with beards, the, the draconian monsters on their heels? Even the IRGC, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, and many of the military have been taken aback and they're not they don't know what to do now left long enough without the without the pressure from the 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 rest of the world they will begin to do what iran facilitated in syria use of chemical weapons against assad's own people 
the use of foreign and domestic military to to uh, rain hell and evil upon neighborhoods and begin a cleansing operation of those who dared to speak out against the regime. An aide to Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei paid a visit to Miss Amini's family. This is how much damage control these guys are in. And told them that all institutions will take action to defend the rights that were violated. State media reported senior military police Jalal Rashidi Khuki publicly criticized the morality police saying the force was a mistake as it had only produced loss and damage for Iran. Now that's interesting. It's sparking an actual debate in Iran. Now, how no, who knows how long that, and I said military police, that's actually a uh, uh, minister of the parliament, I think. Following the 1979 revolution, authorities in Iran imposed a mandatory dress code requiring all women to wear a headscarf and loose-fitting clothing that disguises their figures in public. Morality police, known formally as the Gesht al-Rashad, or the guidance patrols, have been tasked for decades, among other things, with ensuring women conform with the authorities' interpretations of proper clothing. And it's not just about clothing. They have no rights to property, to work. And if if, if the government denies that, ask women what type of uh, what happens and, and how many women are in prison in the worst some of the worst prisons on the planet that decide to question these things. Officers have the power to stop women and assess whether they are showing too much hair, their trousers, their undercoats, overcoats are too short or close-fitting, or they're wearing too much makeup. Punishments for this, including fines, imprisonment, flogging. 2014, there was a low level mass movement of women that began sharing photos and video of themselves publicly flouting the hijab laws as part of an online protest campaign called My Stealthy Freedom. And many in our Muslim reform movement like Asra Raheel and others have been a part of that spread of the word about My Stealthy Freedom. It has since inspired other movements including White Wednesdays, Girls of the Revolution Street, and Ms. Nashif expressed alarm at the reported unnecessary and disproportionate use of force against the thousands of people that have taken part in protests since Ms. Amini was murdered. A Norway-based organization that monitors human rights called Henga, predominantly Kurdish areas of Iran, said a 16-year-old boy and 23-year-old man were killed when security forces opened fire at protesters last week. The group also reported that security forces shot dead a woman at a protest in the neighboring province. And this is all from the BBC reporting. What's amazing is now we've seen men involved. You know, as much as there were protests throughout the Arab world and the Arab awakening, Ayan Hirsi Ali points out what is unique and so hopeful for what's happening in Iran is that there's men side by side in almost equal numbers as the women protesting not just about their own rights but about the women's rights and how much emblematic the hijab is of so many countless other rights and crimes against humanity that are 
that are perpetrated against the Iranian people on a daily basis. The BBC's Al-Hamadani said, while we were waving our scarves, on the BBC, Al-Hamadani said, while we are waving our headscarves in the sky, I felt so emotional to be surrounded and protected by other men. It feels great to see this unity. I hope the world supports us. Tehran's governor, Mohsen Mansouri, tweeted on Tuesday that the protests were fully organized in the, with the agenda to create unrest. While state TV alleged that Ms. Amini's death was being used as an excuse by Kurdish separatists and critics of the establishment, basically calling them terrorists. And not to mention, then they invoked, wait for it, you can figure this out yourself, right? The Jews, they invoked America, that somehow this was the West's imposition of foreign ideas. And, and you know, so many of my good friends uh, uh, responded appropriately and said, oh, well, thank you for the credit to, for advancing human rights against oppression. But they didn't do it. <laughs> this is a natural, organic evolution. And again, the anti-Semitism of, of conspiracy theories and blaming the Jews for everything that happens to them, even when they deserve it, is so typical of fascists, of theocratic fascists, Islamo-fascists. And then it stopped no more. You look in the United States, the Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamic Society of North America, releases very little. Oh, the, the Obama right-hand MPAC did have a panel in which they talked about religious freedom and and celebrated the movement of women, liberty, and freedom. And I have to tell you, I'm a little, uh, on the one hand, for, for all the things that they said that was reassuring, at least they're supporting freedom, where have they been? When I debated Salam and Mariyati about the Muslim reform movement, which you can find online on our YouTube channel, find debate between Jasser and Mariyati, with impact on the Muslim reform movement. His position was Islam does not need reform. His position that Muslims are misunderstood, that they have reformed. And yet he could not find anywhere where the texts bear this out. There's a lot of work yet, especially in the introduction of a new school of legalisms and a new Sharia school of thought of 21st century modernity, since there are no schools of thought that have advanced beyond the 13th and 14th century when it comes to Sharia, be it Sunni or, Sh or Shia schools of thought. But again, so therefore their, their apologetics, their dissimulation when it comes to Islam is full throttle in that they have said nothing about any real any real acknowledgement, transparency, any real sense that maybe the people of Islam will reject full stop the Islamists in every way and that the women's movement in Iran is just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg of the underbelly of revolt that is coming. Yet the North American Iranian Council, the Khomeini apologists continue to 
talk about appeasing the Iranians uh, when it comes to the nuclear program. And just like the Biden administration has been quiet, why? Because they're still holding on to that thread that, oh, can they make a deal? But the weaker they are, the less of a deal they could ever get, not to mention there's no need for a deal as we need maximum pressure. The Trump administration, the Pompeo State Department, had maximum pressure that actually then drove... I was starting to give you before the arc of revolutions. There was the 2009 one that was more more worker-based. Then we had the 2019 revolution during the Trump administration, which was more in the smaller theocratic cities. That was actually where the, the home base of many of the universities that teach this draconian interpretation of political Islam and Sharia. So when these demonstrations happened in 2019, it was about pushing back against theology, the theological interpretation of the Islamist jurists against the jurists, especially in towns like Qom, Q-O-M. And again, mass demonstrations happened for a few weeks and then it withered away because the, the internet was shut down, means of communication were shut down, and unfortunately we did not have the infrastructure behind the scenes to help maintain its longevity and they didn't have it internally and now we have the third iteration which is now the women's movements so we've seen economic we've seen theologic and now we've seen women's movements and soon the the regime will continue to weaken in iran more and more but certainly no thanks to the Islamists in the West that are simply saying what they think needs to be said. But when the reality is, is they are in bed with the Islamists. Now, this is not a, a there are many, this is not a isolated lack of response. There are actually many reformers that we hadn't heard much from that are now front and center from Bill Maher's show to Fox to to other programs that are letting them be heard. Messiah Alinejad has just been an unbelievable hero. To hear her on Bill Maher, go to find the interview that she had on Bill Maher. It is just beyond, beyond refreshing to hear it. And she contrasts, she's just such a contrast from the Islamist apologist. She talks about the identity, the ability to be whole as an individual, to have the right to decide your own bodily autonomy. And how much the West has intentionally suppressed suppressed individuals that would agree with the values of feminists and gay rights activists, and yet they ignored it. And yet, Muslims like herself were considered anti-Muslim bigots, Islamophobes, that they want the Islamists facilitated and the left facilitated suppression of free speech, suppression of debate. So, so different than what's happening on the streets of Tehran and across Iran. How is that, she talks about? How is that possible that the same rights that the West and the left talk about needing here against conservatives, they mischaracterized, by the way, in the, in the West and mischaracterizing conservatives. But when it comes to Iran, they take the side of the oppressors. The code pinks of the world fly to Tehran to meet with the clerics because they have the common animus against the West, because they have a common 
anti-Semitism and hate for Israel and Jews. So many have articulated that the West needs to understand that these women are fighting for their freedom of choice, freedom of faith and freedom, as are the men by their side, and to determine their future. That narrative could include several countries around the world. Just to point out where the Islamists are, by the way, the ambassador for religious freedom, Rashad Hussein, who I've written about and criticized extensively, has given the lip service about women's rights and the need for America and the West to defend their religious freedom. So he has checked that box. But this week, for example, on October 9, he was highlighted by Imam Malik Mujahid, who is one of the authors that I've spoken about extensively, who's written apologetics about jihad, who's worked closely with the Saudi regime, and yet, embarrassingly to Muslims in the West, was chair of the Parliament of World Religions and ignored. Our American Islamic Forum for Democracy actually gave him a direct protest letter through a press release at the Parliament of World Religions about his defense of jihad, defense of anti-Western and, and apologetics by Islamist movements. Having said that, Mujahid and his organization put out uh, their organization called Justice for All, and he runs a Islamist print shop, one of the largest in the country, called Sound Vision, or he's affiliated with it, I don't recall. But the bottom line is, is they put out a press release this week talking about all the things that Rashad Hussein is going to come talk about include focus on Muslim minorities. 400 million Muslims live as minorities. They are vulnerable in an increasingly Islamophobic world. For that reason, Justice for All has been doing its best to help Muslim minorities. Yada, yada, yada. We've worked in Chechnya, Kosovo, etc. Then he talks about the Burma Task Force, working in partnership with the Rohingya Muslims. Okay, all valid, good things, but then he talks about saving the Uyghur campaign. Saving the Uyghurs. And goes on. Okay, valid. Then he talks about save India. So we're, and then a Sri Lanka task force. Come join us. Come join us. Along with Rashad Hussein, Commissioner Imam Majid, Muhammad Majid, a commissioner on the USERF Commission on International Religious Freedom, and Arsalan Suleiman. So this is the agenda of the Islamists. Nothing about Iran, nothing about reform, nothing about obligatory hijab. And let me end with this concept. The Islamists in the West will use the hijab in what ethicists often call a positive right, meaning they have a right to wear it, and they're being denied the right in some places. So they say, we have a right to wear the hijab. We have a positive right to do so. But they never talk about the negative right, a right to refuse to wear it, a right that the West demand that the niqab not be an a, a, a unquestionable right because people have a need to be identified in public and masks are, are inappropriate. So the, the, negative, the, the negative right, if you will, needs to balance the positive rights. Right to free speech is one thing, but what are the limits of that free speech? So a positive right and a negative right. Now, they would amplify the negative right of free speech to prevent 
any criticism of the idea of Islam, though ideas don't have rights. Is free speech thus limitless? Not when you identify and target the killing of an individual or direct violence, but that limit should be very, very, very circumspect and limited. I believe in the American interpretation of that vice, the European interpretation. Lot, Lots more to discuss here, folks. Please get the word out about what's happening in Iran. Please talk to your members of Congress to do special order speeches, to do resolutions of support, to begin to, to fund uh, uh, campaigns of information that would begin to work behind the scenes through public diplomacy, through the State Department, through a cold war, if you will, that shares, that works with those who share our value and begins to spread these ideas because that's so much cheaper than ever having to engage in some direct conflict with a government that has nuclear weapons and then decides that suicide bombing is something they want their whole country to do to get the 12th imam to come. This is real. Much more real than even even the supposition of nuclear threat from Russia that may not be as suicidal as Islamist suicide bombers. Last, I want to talk briefly about the passing of Imam Kordawi, Yusuf Kordawi. This is, some would consider, the spiritual head of the Muslim Brotherhood. But clearly, this is a guy who has had, and I've talked about him many times, has had a program on Al Jazeera about Sharia, had, some would estimate, 60 million plus followers of that program. I would say that he's probably the most dangerous leader in the Sunni Islamic world, which is 90% of the Muslim population is Sunni. Why? Because he is able to somehow articulate a civilizational jihad that may, to the ignorant, that may, to the uninformed, come across as nonviolent. But this is a guy who, if you read everything he said and listen to it or look at it, has denied the Holocaust. He has praised Hitler. He has blamed the Jews for everything. He is deeply anti-Semitic, has been uh, repeatedly defended defended Hamas, defended suicide bombing against Americans in Iraq. So this is no moderate cleric. He is a, even as the Saudi newspaper last week, Arab News, declared preacher of hate dies. Now, would the Saudis have published that four or five years ago? Probably not. Now that they've done the 180 against the Islamists, but thank you. I'm glad they did. And clearly... They've done so because the viral Islamist movements, even though they drink a little bit from the same uh, Kool-Aid that the Wahhabis and others do as far as Islamic State and jihad and uh, misogyny and anti-Semitism and things like that goes, at the end of the day, the Saudis are now calling out the Islamist clerics and trying to put an end to a lot of the clerical preaching that is anti-Semitic and uh, anti-Israel, especially with hopefully their their warming towards Israel, as we've seen with Bahrain and Dubai and the Emirates.
Morocco, etc., that this will then obviously then continue with Saudi Arabia. But the passing of Qardawi, what's I think what's amazing about it is a few things. First of all, there is no heir apparent, which is a wonderful thing. The heir apparent was initially Tariq Ramadan, I would think, the grandson of Hassan al-Banna and a prolific writer who wrote many books in the West about European Islam, about reform, and so-called, and I would call that his books of reform. Even Qardawi wrote books about reform. Qardawi's site, qardawi.net, had millions of followers. He, he wrote, and we translated this in 2009 and 2010, about Islamic democracy. And he felt that Islamic democracy was about ridding the Muslim world of ignorance, jahiliyyah, and bringing knowledge. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? But within that idea is a supremacist thought that, that success comes with the domination of a clerical class, an ulama, a scholar class that can then create a board, if you will, that would then decide affairs for the ignorant people or the less knowledgeable people. And they won't be ignorant because they'll be followers of Islam and the other faiths would get their rights from Islam and not individually from God. So he talks about Islamic democracy, which is essentially majoritocracy. And this is the debate, the biggest debate of the day. And the likes of Brookings Institute that had a strong relationship with Qatar and were funded to the millions by Qatar and had branches in Qatar, worked closely with the likes of Qardawi and Tariq Ramadan. Now Tariq Ramadan is no longer the heir apparent because he fell out of favor when he was accused by multiple women and then put into prison for assault, sexual harassment, and possible rape. I think he's out now, but he became so damaged. The Center for Cultural Understanding and other things that he had developed in Qatar were no longer viable, and you'll see that they end in most of their online footprint in 2018, approximately. So Qardawi does not have an heir apparent. It'll be a battle between the Salafists of the Wahhabists and then sort of the political Islamists, if you will, and the Islamists that believe in a caliphate, a caliphism, where you have a loosely connected Islamic majority countries that then form, oh, like the OIC, the Organization of, Organization of Islamic Cooperation that is a voting bloc in the UN. Those countries come together to form this neo-caliphate or official caliphate, which is what Erdogan's trying to do with his Islamist party in Turkey. And Qardawi was sort of the guide of these movements, the glue. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens because the Islamist leaders have now started to implode with corruption within. The radical movements spawned even more radical movements. So the brotherhoods spawned Hamas and Al-Qaeda, which... Others then spawned ISIS, which is even more radical. And the departure of many Muslims from Islam is actually as painful as it might be to many of us Muslims to see 
is, I think, going to begin to be a wake-up call to our community about the reality of what happens when the likes of Qardawi are dominating thought. And yet, if you look as the investigative project on terrorism, Abha Shankar then reported this week, American Islamists rushed to offer tributes this week to a radical Egyptian cleric and spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who's had a long-established support for violent jihad and murdering Jews. The U.S. Council of Muslim Organizations, USCMO, a coalition of the country's top Islamist groups, glowingly eulogized Sheikh Yusuf al-Qardawi as the most prominent and consequential scholar of Islam of our time. The statement added that, he, that influenced as a teenager, Hassan al-Banna, the charismatic founder of the Brotherhood, in 1928 and joined him in his mission of re-establishing Islam and its worship and trans actions in the hearts and lives of Muslims and Muslim society and re-envisioning the political integration of the Muslim Ummah, our global community, free of settler colonial presence or imperial hegemonic influence on Muslim lands. Wow, that almost sounds like critical race theory. <laughs> but back to the point at hand. Nothing reveals the reality of what the Islamists in America deny. They claim to not be affiliated with the Brotherhood. They claim to not be Islamist agents on our soil. They claim to not be separatists. But here, the 96-year-old evil, I would say satanic Islamist uh, 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 ideologue that has radicalized so many Muslims, dies and they herald him as a mover and shaker of one of the most respected scholars of our time. Oh yeah, maybe by you guys. And the project on this investigative project on terrorism goes on to talk about so many of his radical ideas, his viewpoints on homosexuality. And I will not read how how crazy his ideas are. I'll let you read that. But then Qardawi had founded the International Union of Muslim Scholars, the IUMS, that had a long history of supporting Hamas and working to bind together European Muslim Islamist groups from Sweden to France to Britain and on. And Qardawi ended up, as a result, not being able to travel to Britain because of the UK's government's understanding of how much he radicalized Muslims in their country and how close he was to Mesh'at the leaders of Hamas. The Muslim American Society, founded in 1993 as the overt arm of the Muslim Brotherhood in America, emulated its parents' organization in issuing an obituary describing Qardawi as a staunch opponent of imperialism and political oppression faced by the Muslim world. And they saw him as a man to emulate Isam Omesh, chairman of Waqf Washington Trust of Care National and board member at Dara Hijra Islamic Center, with his own checkered past of Islamist radicalism, said, May Allah have mercy on you, forgive you, Qardawi, and reward you on your behalf and on behalf of the Muslims' humanity, yada, yada, yada. That was from Nihad Awad, actually, I'm sorry. Omesh also sent tributes. His, his tribute was, May Allah have mercy on the scholar of the Ummah, 
the scholar, the jurist, the diligent, Mujahid. Oh, my God. And last but not least, Hussam Elush, who always calls me Uncle Zudi. The, the true separatist, Hussam Elush, described Qardawi as the scholarly champion of the oppressed. So, stay tuned. We'll see who fills in the gaps. There are many more that also sent in their condolences. Suhaib Webb, Omar Suleiman, who gave the opening prayer for the Congress and was lifted up by Pelosi and a Texas congresswoman, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, I think, and, and others. Yasser Qadi, who the New York Times heralded as the moderate against Al-Qaeda. Well, sure, the Brotherhood hates Al-Qaeda, also lauded Qurdawi. So the Islamists revealed themselves this week, ladies and gentlemen, and that's a big story. It's a big story because you can't mistake it this week, no matter how hard you try to be a bigot against Muslims and try to ignore those of us who are telling you what really is westernized Islam and moderation in our faith. No, you can't ignore it this time. Well, anyways, back to the grind. Please tell the world about Iran. Tell the world about the Islamist movement and its dangers. I'll be back with more soon on Reform This. Find me online at the Blaze Radio Podcast Network and also on Twitter at Dr. D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, J-A-S-S-E-R, and on Twitter at Reform This radio stay well god bless y'all we'll see you soon stream and subscribe to more blaze media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts